0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman who's inspired me with her perseverance, her pluck, and the business that she's built, or the life that she's living. Today, I have an extraordinary woman who lives in Wichita, Kansas, and is a winemaker. Two things that seem to me to be an unusual combination. Welcome, Jenny McDonald.
4: Thank you, Dana.
3: I'm so happy to have you here. First of all, when I saw, you know, woman, winemaker, Wichita, I'm like the three W's (laughs) (laughs) that are not the World Wide Web that don't necessarily all add up. And, uh, you know, as I got to know you a little better from um, like a little research and a little talking to you, I, I realized what our conversation was really going to be about was not necessarily just those three W's, but it is racism, women, and wine, because you're African American. And um, that is one of the reasons that you're in the business. Correct. So it's relevant, you know, often like the notion of calling out (laughs) color, not the first thing I would want to do. But in your case, it's a, a it's a passion point for you. To represent for others.
4: Absolutely.
3: So I'd love to go way back to your childhood. Um, I'd love for you to tell everyone about your parents and your family and what it was like growing up in um, rural Nebraska.
4: Yes. So I had the privilege of growing up in Columbus, Nebraska. It's about a town of 20,000 people. What's really unique is my parents could not have their own biological children. So they adopted four of us, all individually and all from different families. My older brother's black. I'm black as well. My sister is biracial, very light-skinned, and my younger brother's black. So they did this in the 80s before adoption in biracial families was something that was more of the norm and uh, we definitely stood out in our community, but for a good, for good reasons
3: (laughs) in that community, a tiny community um, in a, you know, not the most populous state, right? One would imagine that the community would be a little taken aback or perhaps not embracing, but that wasn't your experience at all.
4: No, it wasn't. It was actually the opposite. So what I found was people really took the opportunity to get to know me. I always felt welcome and safe in my community, which was so important because when I moved off to college is really the first time I experienced racism.
3: And why do you think that was? Like, what was the difference between the small town and where did you go to
4: college? So I went to University of Nebraska Omaha my freshman year. And so that's the largest city in Nebraska. And I think people were taken aback by, oh, Jennifer's not quite like the stereotypical black person. And so that threw a lot of people off.
3: Wow. What were you supposed to be like as a stereotypical black person?
4: So I speak very... I speak very well English, you know, good English, <laughs> I don't <laughs> use a lot of slang, so I was always told I, I talked like a white girl. Um, you know, I try and be, you know, poised, sophisticated, you know, people thought I was too uppity, um, so I just didn't fit the norm of what they thought a black woman should be.
3: And so how did that make you feel? Like, was that hard?
4: It was. I felt a little bit out of place, but as I've become... Uh, more mature. I just own who I am and how I was brought up.
3: And your parents were enormously welcoming to the entire community, right? Do do you feel like they're the ones who set you on the path and also set all of their neighbors into um, sort of a sense of inclusion and getting to know you?
4: Absolutely. So what was neat is any individual who was considering adoption, especially of Um, in a biracial circumstance they would go to my parents and ask questions you know I had to travel 90 miles to get my hair done (laughs) you know every two to three months you know and so my mom picked up you know how to work with black hair but that was something she had to learn and then she would teach others how to do black hair
3: that's Awesome, I would say.
4: <laughs> and you were a track star, right? I was. So track was my passion growing up, and I look at that, and you know the hard work, the effort, the drive for excellence, and I it really correlates to my life now as an entrepreneur. But just having that drive, and and I did well. You know, it was fun running track because I excelled at it. Um, Is
3: that like? Because I don't do anything athletic, so to excel <laughs> at track, does one have to be like just train hard, or is there some gift you start with?
4: I think there's really a natural ability and a gift. So from the time I was in kindergarten, or um, you know, I was one of the fastest kids in my class um, in my town. Either three years above me or three years below me, you know, I was never beat. In I a love that. <laughs>
3: wow. What did that do to your ego? Like to never be beat? I think that's kind of amazing.
4: It is did that amazing. give you a, a superpower? It did, but then I wanted to uh, be pushed. And so I actually tried to apply to a track team in Lincoln, Nebraska, where there were some individuals that could push me. And I was denied that opportunity because they thought we would create kind of a monopoly. So that was the first instance where... A monopoly meaning... A meaning where we would just dominate too much wow. as, as a track club. So that was the first instance that I realized, oh, wow, sometimes it isn't good to be too good because then you're denied opportunities to grow and develop. Did that ever recur? Did you ever see that again as an example? I didn't, but it's something that I am very mindful of now because even as an entrepreneur in the wine space, I'm having my competitors kind of look at me and question what I'm doing. And, you know, I even got a mysterious complaint turned into the alcohol bureau of control, you know. And so when you are making a name for yourself and you are driving for excellence people don't always you kind of ruffle feathers sometimes
3: how do you feel about ruffling
4: feathers you know i do me and i i want to be the best that i can be and so i've just decided that i'm okay with that because it needs to be done (laughs) i like that so you uh
3: you were an hr professional for a good long time i was did
4: you enjoy that i did i enjoyed it um I focused really on recruiting. I was a generalist and an HR manager, but my specialty was recruiting, and I really liked that because it gave me the opportunity to really get to know people and their skill sets and figure out how we could leverage their skill sets for the company that I was working for to allow them to be the best, you know, them. Uh-huh. So,
3: right, it's a theme. Like, you get to be the best you, they get to be the best best them, and that's, like, what you're invested in.
1: Absolutely. As your,
3: as your day job. Um, And I know that you did a lot of research in that job. Like there's a lot of Internet searching to find the people
1: there
4: is. Absolutely. So I felt like I really gained an expertise on Internet sourcing and research and data mining um, because. The worldwide Web is huge. You have to figure out how to navigate it to find what you're looking for. And I was successful, you know, doing searches on LinkedIn and Boolean searches uh, to find the right talent to fill open positions.
3: So are there tricks to that? I'm a horrible researcher, which might come as a surprise to some people because it seemed like, how bad can you be? But I'm a terrible, I don't know, like I... Are there tricks to doing it well?
4: There there are a lot of tricks um, in doing it well. So it's all about creating the perfect search string. <laughs> oh, tell me more. <laughs> With the ands and the ors really? and the nots and the pluses. Um, how you type in your search string is going to determine the amount of results that you get. And um, that's for
3: people, but also for anything?
4: For anything, yeah.
3: Hmm. I didn't know there was a string. And so the ands and the nots are, and the
4: ors... Essentially, help you tighten down your search so that you get the results that you're looking for.
3: So, if, if anyone's wondering, like, why I'm asking for all the search <laughs> questions because they seem a little weird, aside from the fact that I actually do genuinely want to know, um, it turned out that this type of searching helped build her business, Absolutely. and um, and so it really there's a reason, people. There's a reason, and so. Uh, You decided to open a winery, which I've just, I know the why, but you have a why. Why did you do that?
4: My why is very complex, but very simple, I tell people. So one, I'm very passionate about wine and as an HR professional, it could be kind of stressful. And I always felt like there wasn't a winery within reach, within driving distance that I could go to after my work day. So, it came from a need. I wanted to build an urban winery that was close to the customer base. Um, But then also, as I looked... This is just to say, that
3: is an odd need. Like, you know, I need to have a winery near me so I can go have a drink at a winery. Because you could have gone to a bar or a restaurant but like why a winery specifically
4: so the wineries are a lot more laid back and relaxed the ambiance is different than a bar or a restaurant you get to meet the winemaker you get to hear about how the wines are made usually at a winery they're a lot more knowledgeable about the wine specifically and so you have more rich uh, conversations with the individuals that work there. So you're just looking to know more and you're like, yeah. okay,
3: you bars, you're not really doing it for me. I want a winery <laughs> and I'm going to make it. Correct. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, did you became a home winemaker? Was that before or after the big winery dream settled in your mind?
4: You know, it was actually before. So, um, I manage my family's budget and I was looking at, you know, my expenses and I'm like, oh wow, I am spending quite a bit of money on wine. I wonder if I can make wine for less than what I'm paying on the retail shelf. No way. Yes. Is that really how it started? Yeah. <gasps> yeah. And What else did you find in your budget? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, shopping, clothes. <laughs> some other things. Okay. Yeah, some other things. <laughs> but, um, I I felt like it would be a fun, you know, hobby that would allow me to use my creativity, and it was. So I did that for a couple years. So where did you get your grapes. So first, I started with kits. Uh-huh. So you can purchase kits just um, from local, like home and garden stores, or, or you can any buying better, off or, the internet.
3: Or any better than any others, or are they all kind of the same? They're
4: all kind of the same. Okay. But then once I mastered the kits. I graduated from purchasing fruit, so I sourced local strawberries, peaches, apples. I couldn't get a hold of any grapes initially because grapes are very coveted. Um, Coveted, you
3: mean like so only people who had been doing it a long time, they got the allocation of the actual
4: grapes? You couldn't get grapes? No, No I could not get any local grapes. So I started with fruit, and then once that worked out, I started. So wait, did it, was it
3: sweet? Did you make sweet wines, like an apple wine, or like what does that taste like? Like, like did you make peach wine?
4: Is that schnapps? So my all of my wines were dry. So okay. I'm a dry wine drinker, and so and I'm just to determine to say dry means not sweet, Correct. as opposed to not liquid. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you. <laughs> just to say, yes. So the residual sugars were very low in my wines. Um, They turned out really well. And so the next process was for me to source just juice. So grape juice, but I I purchased Cabernet juice, Pinot Noir juice, Riesling juice from California. It came by refrigerated truck. And then I fermented those wines. And then those were the wines that I submitted to wine contests in Kansas and won awards. Okay, I love this. So how did you pick where you got your juice from? Because that a big research. That was a big research, but there's a lot of bulk um, juice on the market through the beverage industry website. Um, So that was just kind of looking it up and seeing what prices were available and quantities were available. And just making some selections. Okay, so did you end up making wine that was cheaper than what you would have bought on the shelves? I did. Yes, <laughs> I did. So I got my wines down to about four to five dollars per bottle, which you know, if I'm purchasing wine, it's Robert Mondavi and Charles Krug, and you know, so some of those bottles get pretty expensive. Um, so that was a savings. And. How
3: did you know? Is the fermentation the same whether you get the juice from somebody else or it was the same process? you use the same equipment?
4: I use the same equipment.
3: Okay, so, and then you sent your
4: homemade wines to contests. I did. So I first started out What made you so bold? Well, I was getting good feedback. So I was giving my wines away for like Christmas and people's birthdays and people were like, Jennifer, these are good. You should just submit them because the Kansas Grape Growers Winemakers Association has an amateur wine competition. And so I sent those in and the first time I got a bronze, the second time I got a bronze and a silver, and then the third time I got uh, three silvers and a gold. So I steadily got better and improved and I was just thrilled once I received that gold medal. So at that point, I was like, okay, I am putting together a, a business plan. <laughs> winning a lot of things. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> at that point is when I decided I was going to do this as a career. So you did it while you are an HR professional. Because yeah. I have a pet theory.
3: It's called, I call it the shark theory, shark tooth theory. And I believe that people who want to find their next career usually should start it before they drop out of the current one, yes. right? So the sharks have rows of teeth. Yes. So you always have your second layer of teeth ready in case the first layer. It's not why the sharks have two layers of teeth, rows of teeth, but, um, but that's just, I think that's great, right? Because you can get, uh, get a lot of experience before you go take a big leap.
4: Absolutely. So I started all of this in 2014 I, um, just with making the wines at home, I went back to school and got a master's in agribusiness. I completed my master's degree in 2016 in May, and then had my formal business plan put in place in September. So I incorporated the business in September, but I did not walk away from my full-time job until September of 2018. So, I mean, I was employed all the way up until the end, and it really was, um, was until i started bringing on outside investors is when they said okay jennifer you now need to really focus on this business so uh, many women say that to get
3: um investors as a woman is difficult i imagine i'm gonna double that for um an african-american woman looking for money so how hard was it for you to find money
4: it's been very difficult. In fact, um, so I brought on two investors and they are the best investors because they invested in me, not my business, which gives me a lot of flexibility to change, pivot, uh, speed up, slow down. Like They are investing in my ability to run the company. Um, and so at this point, I am I'm pretty far away from my capital raise goal for one particular piece of real estate for my winery, so I may have to let that go and find something else that is more bankable because I was looking at going into a lease space where I think I need to buy a building for my winery. And why is that? collateral. So with the banks, they rather see me purchase a space and that's good collateral versus leasing, which doesn't amount to any collateral. So how did you find the two investors? Um, One investor is a huge proponent of entrepreneurism in Wichita. So I got introduced to him when we actually sat on a panel. So it was kind of like It was a panel of CEOs, um, new CEOs, I was one of the new ones, (laughs) and then seasoned, and just as he was talking and as I was talking, you could feel the energy, like there was good energy there, Um, so I kind of let that go, but then about three, four months later, I reached out to him, and we just had a sit-down conversation, and shortly after that, he invested, Okay, that's a pretty short time. That's great. That was very short. So then after that, it took another three to four months before I brought on my next investor, and I've kind of stalled out. And there has been a lot of research around the inequities of uh, funding for women and black women in particular. Um, When you look at just kind of factors of trust and comfortableness. You know, people are comfortable with people who look like them, who have had the same experience as them, and are going into businesses that they're familiar with. And a lot of times I get three strikes on those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> particularly in Wichita. I mean, if particularly you were in, in Wichita. In Napa, you'd
3: hit like a, a different, slightly different set of walls, but. Um, What's the hardest question anyone's ever asked you? Like, Are any of the questions hard or you think it's just gaining the trust is
4: hard? I think it is gaining the trust because Kansas is not known for being a wine producing state. I think people are like, how is Jennifer going to make this happen here? There's a lot. Of, they think you're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a little bit. Short. Yes, because when I was in San Francisco, um, my 2017 Chardonnay won best of class in the San Francisco Chronicle Wine Competition. And so I went out to San Francisco to pour my wines at the Chronicle's public tasting. When I shared my story, everyone's like, this is brilliant. I think this is great because I'm still going to use 50% California grapes, and then 50% Kansas grapes in my wine portfolio. So people thought that was brilliant. But in Wichita, that's just kind of, it's never been done. You know, as a new idea. And people just are having a hard time grasping that. But you have your fans. I do have my fans, yes.
3: And so you're, because you're pouring wine. I mean, I've seen events where you pour wine. Correct. Is that your process at the moment? Like, um, how are you selling the wine?
4: So right now we can sell our wines two ways. So online through our website, um, we can ship to the state of California, Kansas, and Nebraska. And then we are also in seven local liquor stores and wine retailers. So people can actually go to, you know, a local store in Wichita and buy a bottle of wine. Okay, so let's
3: go back to the crazy part. So you could have actually done... Anything you have, you're an entrepreneur, you have an entrepreneur spirit, you're a track star, you're like, you just make things happen. So, you could have made, I don't know, a cheese business happen, or you could (laughs) have made a hair salon happen, or anything. Um, but was there anything about the fact that it was so illogical that appealed to you, or is it really just like you wanted that winery as a
4: place for you to go? I really wanted this winery experience because my slogan with Jenny Don Sellers is let your moment begin. And so I feel like wine is that connector that brings people together. Um, it's very relaxing and calming. And so I wanted to create these experiences with people. I've been hosting a monthly wine class, uh, called wine Acation. and it's just a blast, you know, 20 to 30 people show up, mostly women, but a few men. And we talk about wine. I'm teaching them different things and we just have a good time. <laughs> so I, I just wanted to create these moments, um, with people through wine,
3: And you've you've gotten to do that. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about um, Jenny Dawn Sellers in Wichita, Kansas. Stay with us.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including cotbalt Cave Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emeusa.com.
2: Hey there, seems like you like podcasts. My name is Eli Sussman. I'm a chef and restaurant owner, and I've got a great podcast right here on Heritage Radio Network called The Line. On my show, I interview chefs and restaurateurs about the trajectory of their career. It's a one-on-one conversation where we talk about where it all started to where they are cooking now and everything in between. You can find The Line everywhere you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
3: Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is a a one-of-a-kind. I'm just going to say you're one-of-a-kind in so many ways, but one of them is that uh, Jenny McDonald is an African-American female winemaker in Wichita, Kansas, and those (laughs) things are surprisingly you know, surprising to put together. But we've listened um, to the why. Uh, one of the reasons why was to ha- be a role model for others um, in her community so that uh, she could inspire other women uh, to be CEOs and particularly any African American um, women to be drinking. Uh, great wine in great places, and following their dreams. So, how did I say that? Was that how
4: you would say it? Absolutely, it is. So, the diversity and inclusion aspect of what I'm doing, I think, is very important. So, Kansas has about 40 to 50 different wineries. But none of those wineries are led by a female African-American. I'm actually the first commercial African-American winemaker in the state of Kansas. So bringing up a whole generation of people um, and, you know, just exposing them to the winemaking process, the grape growing process is something that I am proud of and excited to do. And did you see people who look like you
3: in the classes that you took, because you got a master's in ag, um, or in the restaurants that you go to or asking the questions that you're asking? Like, What type of
4: representation have you seen That is a very good topic to bring up. So in my coursework, I was the only African-American in my master's of agribusiness cohort. So there was a group of 20 of us that went through all the same classes and then graduated. um, And I was the only one. And so that made me think of, you know... The wine industry, the agriculture industry is a thriving industry. There needs to be more representation. But even when I look at the global um, and national wine industry, there's still just a handful of us. So I was in San Francisco pouring my wines, and I had one of my colleagues go around and count, and she counted five, five. African Americans behind the table pouring wine. Oh, out um, of how many? Out of hundreds, there were hundreds of wineries there that day, represented.
3: And why do you think it is?
4: I think that um, just lack of exposure. I think, plain and simple, just a lack of exposure. Now, you got it. Did you get exposure um, when you were growing up with your parents? Yes, I did. And so that was something that my parents would take us to the vineyards and to the orchards and being outside walking through, you know, the orchards and the vineyards and you get to pick your own fruit or grapes. That was something that I loved. I loved that experience. Um, And that was something that my parents exposed me to. And, uh um.
3: did you travel in Napa as a kid or later because your your juice
4: comes from California? Correct. So I never had the opportunity to travel to Napa as a child, but as an adult, I've been there quite a bit as I've been making the, the six wines that I have on the market. And I just love it there. It's so peaceful. It's beautiful. Uh, the people are very friendly, and the wine is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> you can't complain about that. And have you traveled... and? been, um, tasted the wines in
3: France or Italy the have, has that interested you? Or are you basically like looking at the
4: U S and thinking about your wine? So right now I have not had the opportunity to go over to Europe. I would love to someday. Um, that's definitely on my bucket list, but right now I'm really focused on California, um, because that's where all of my, well, not Currently, all my wine is coming from California. Right. To be clear, your, your goal, your dream of Kansas grapes um, hasn't come to pass yet. Correct. So we're building towards that. But our first Kansas grape harvest will be in the fall. So we're really excited about that. So you've planted some grapes. I have planted um, some fruit trees, but we are working with local growers and we will be able to get some grapes this fall, So finally they're giving you an allocation. They like, are.
3: She's yes. serious. Okay, fine. <laughs> it's not home winemaking anymore. Yes. <laughs> she can have some of our grapes. Correct. Oh, boy. Okay. So um, you're married and you have a couple of kids. And I'm wondering, what was your husband's thought? You have this great job. And uh, and you're like, honey, I'm going to open a winery. Mm. And what does your husband say to that?
4: He thought it was crazy initially. Yeah. Yeah. But it was one of those things that he saw how hard I was working and he saw the traction that I was making. And I've had obstacles and challenges, but I've never given up. Mm -hmm. My personal motto is have faith and never give up. And so as time went on, he became more and more supportive to the fact that he actually helped me plant our urban orchard and that was a lot of hard work. So, <laughs> so you know, he's, he's now it. in it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's vested um, now. <laughs>
3: like what is are, what was what are the hardest obstacle that you've had to overcome?
4: Besides fundraising, it's really been um, you know, making sure I have the right staff in place. Um, so, And you've had some growing pains with the staff, right? I have had some growing pains with the staff. As a startup business, you're moving so quickly that, um, like, I built my business into three phases. And what I found was the skill sets that you need in one phase sometimes don't transfer over to the next phase. Um, and so that was hard to have to say a good. You know, goodbye to a couple loyal team members that just couldn't make the leap. I think, particularly as an HR professional, you must feel like I can hire people
3: for the long term. And then it turns out you haven't been a CEO, like you have had a startup. Correct. You know, like, was that hard for you? Because (laughs) your goal, I'm sure, as an HR professional is to make the right hires and hopefully have people stay.
4: Yes, re- retention. You know, retention is so important and so it was really hard, especially coming from that HR mindset and then I had to put my CEO cap back on and realize that, you know, the skill set just wasn't there and so we needed to make a change. And um okay, so your
3: your husband's on board. What about your kids?
4: My kids are very on board to the fact that, like, my son will ask, ooh, that's sparkling one," you know, I want to try <laughs> some of that. Or <laughs> my daughter's like, can I smell that? And my daughter will drink her, um, her grape juice out of a wine glass, you know, and swirls. And, and so they're seeing that. But then they also see how hard I work so that, you know, they're actually working really hard in school And they talk about some of the different roles and opportunities that they could have in my business someday. Um, So that... Okay, that's adorable. Yeah. What do they want to be? So my son Mm -hmm. has a knack for baking and just culinary arts. And so he wants to be the chef. And then my daughter um, right now wants to be the winemaker helping me make the wines and determining what, what grapes I use. Uh, she had an opportunity to go to Napa with me when I was blending my um, rosé and white wine. And, you know, you have to identify the color of your wine so you can document it and put it in your fact sheets. And Emma's like, that looks like rose gold. I'm like, you're right. It does look like rose
3: gold. Good description. (laughs) Yes. We're going to use that one. Uh, I think getting the you know getting the kids involved is so great my my daughter um when i was the editor of food and wine we had wine around the house or wine at restaurants all the time and i was encouraging them you know she's now 18 still not actually legally able to drink but when she was you know 14 15 16 i'd be like here you should really try this like i want her to try wine before it's like hey i just want to get drunk yeah she never went into that phase but she would smell the wine and she'd be like Nail polish. I'm like, no,
4: that's not a descriptor.
3: (laughs) "Um, Okay, maybe to you, but I don't really smell that as nail polish. Let's move on. (laughs) So it took her. It took her a while to get past like just smelling alcohol, you know, just straight alcohol. alcohol To um, you know to get to like the fruit. Correct. Um, So one of the things that you've talked about with. being successful on in, in HR is the importance of vulnerability. Yes. I'd love to hear you talk about that because it's my, one of my favorite topics. I think that vulnerability is in, important to trust, which is one of the things that you, you need for a successful, successful business and, um, you know, working with others.
4: Absolutely. So I think vulnerability is so important as you're building relationships with people just to be your authentic self And one of the things that I realized that um, a fellow entrepreneur told me that I wasn't doing well enough was speaking my why. So it wasn't until about 30, 45 days ago that I really talked about diversity and inclusion. And that was such a deep part of my why, but I didn't feel comfortable talking about it. And then I finally just said, I need to be vulnerable and share the meaning behind what I'm doing so that the right people come on board to support my mission and vision. And why why was that hard to say? Because talking about race is so uncomfortable right now. And the climate, I feel like here in the U.S., I feel like race has kind of gotten stirred up again. And, you know, there's more discriminatory, like overt Um, examples of discrimination going on today than any other time that I can remember that it does make it a little bit more uncomfortable to talk about it, but I think pointing things out to people so they can change their behavior is important.
3: And ha- do you feel like you've seen a change in the way you connect with people? If you say, look, I'm doing this partly because I'm a black woman and I want to be an example. Like, do you feel like there's a better connection? And they're like, oh, I get it. Yes. And you're not a crazy lady who just, like, fell in love with car- California wine and wanted to do it here?
4: Correct. Because, you know... um wine is still an alcoholic beverage you know and i didn't want to be seen as oh jennifer just likes wine and you know jennifer just is doing this to you know get a buzz or you know it's like no i am doing this for a deeper meaning It's about the diversity and the inclusion and trying to educate people about fine wine. You know, there's a deeper meaning than just, you know, having a good time and And drinking
3: wine. what would you say to people who say, like, you're never going to get a fine wine out of Kansas?
4: I think it's possible. (laughs) I think with Kansas, you have to appreciate the grapes that can be grown in our soil. Um, so it's the Norton Grapes, it's the Chambreson, the Brianna, the Traminette, um, the Vito Blanc. So they're grapes that aren't as well known and popular as the grapes that can be grown in California, but it's all about education. So Traminette can make a really nice sweet wine. Same with Brianna. So people who like Moscato may like the Brianna and Traminette. Chamberson can be made into a really nice dry wine that's similar to like a Pinot Noir. Um, Norton's a deeper, bolder, fuller wine, so that's going to be more like a Cabernet Sauvignon. So as you, you kind of have to match people's wine preferences up with what's available in Kansas so that they're drinking things that are within their palate range. And what do you
3: think that palette is? Or because you just described a pretty wide palette from sweet to, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon.
4: Yeah. So I feel like because oh, um, you did research, Actually, I you know,
3: <laughs> you do know. I'm not. Yes. Ask, I'm asking you a question. You know the answer to this is not a guess.
4: No. So in Kansas, um, most Kansas do have a sweeter palette but um there are some wine connoisseurs in Wichita so <laughs> good to know <laughs> there are some people who are you know shipping in wines from France and who are buying really high end wines from California um but as i did my research Because um, for a year, I was working on a thesis, and I did firsthand research on consumer wine preferences and had around 80 people taste 24 different wines and give me ratings on aroma, appearance, body, taste, and finish. Um, So I did firsthand research, and that clearly showed me that people do like sweet wine. Yeah, I mean, American America has a very
3: sweet palate, so yeah. it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't surprise me completely to learn that. So um, you, we were talking about your two kids, and then I got distracted by something else. We, we were talking about your two kids, and um, we were talking about vulnerability, which really, before I got distracted, was a bridge to the um, the not-for-profit that you founded in your son's name, uh, Desmond's Cure. I'd love to hear about your commitment for not-for-profit and
4: why you founded um, this charity in your son's name. Absolutely. So at my core, I feel like I'm a socialpreneur. So, you know, the social causes really, um, you know, I care about. I, and what happened was my son was diagnosed with aplastic anemia, which is a blood disorder. It's not cancer, but they treat it like cancer. So he had to have um, a bone marrow transplant, but then before that, chemotherapy and radiation to kill all of his cells, so that he could receive my daughter's stem cells and have that be thriving in his body. Why is it not cancer, but treated like cancer? So with or is that cancer, very with cancer, um, there um, is an component that it could be terminal Mm -hmm. um, but with the blood disorder it's treatable but sometimes not curable Mm -hmm. so we were thankful that Desmond would never um, die from aplastic anemia but he went to hell and back to get better (laughs) Um, So we created a foundation in his name. When we were in the hospital, we found that so many people were just giving back to us um, with, you know, buying him toys to keep him busy in the hospital because we were there for six weeks in the hospital. But then in Kansas City near the hospital for three months after the transplant for recovery. So we were away from home for a very extended period of time. So just the love that people gave through you know donations meals we wanted to find a way to kind of give back and honestly i look at that as it was kind of my healing Mm -hmm. so when you're going through a really difficult time if you can kind of switch your focus off of yourself and on to someone else that's kind of a form of healing It really is, and it was an opportunity for me to just have joy in my daily life when things were not so joyful. Um, And then it gave Desmond an opportunity to be an inspiration to children who were in the hospital because what we ended up doing was putting together these building hope bags full of toys and we would pass them out to other kiddos who were in the hospital. And he gave them. To, and Jasmine he gave them. Rent. How old was he when he was diagnosed? So he was initially diagnosed when he was five. So it was right before he was going into kindergarten. So he actually had to miss the whole first semester of his, of his kindergarten year. And was a good year to miss. It was a good year to miss, yes. I mean, if you're going
3: to miss one. Yes. Then but I'm but I'm sorry. So was that just great? I mean, it must have been shocking,
4: right? It was it, shocking. And how did you discover this? So, uh, Desmond ended up getting these really big bruises, like on his thigh and places that you couldn't just explain away. Um, and then he was getting these, um, red dot rashes called petechiae rashes. Um, and so we went to the doctor and they're like, something is wrong. So they drew his labs, and all of his bloodlines were mysteriously low. So he got immediately admitted to the hospital. Mm. And um, he received several blood transfusions, platelet transfusions, because basically with aplastic anemia, all of your bloodlines are low, um, which, you know, your white cells prevent infections, and your platelets actually clot your blood so if he was to get cut severely he wouldn't have had the platelets to clot the the wound um and then your red blood cells it's really scary it is scary you know keep you healthy and give you energy uh so he was extremely fatigued all the time just wiped out and when he recovered
3: from the transplant um did he go did he have more energy and you know, did he recover so he's just like a normal kid and it's okay if he falls and scratches his arm and
4: so for a while. So he went through this his kindergarten year. He was monitored very closely, you know, first grade, second grade, and then third grade, his counts just started going down and he started getting fatigued again. And so aplastic anemia came back. We treated it through different forms of treatment. He was on steroids for a while. He did what's a treatment called um, IVHG, mm-hmm. um, and none of those things worked. Mm-hmm. So then they had to redo the bone marrow transplant. Oh my goodness. And what was your feeling at that time? Was that hard to work and have a sick child? It was horrible. My focus was on him every moment of the day. I was not my best self. You know, you're just worried sick. Um, And then, so when my daughter first donated, she was three. So she has no memory of that. And it was kind of an easy PC process for her. But the second time around, she was a first grader. So she had anxiety. Just going through that process was really hard for her. Um, she was really upset right before the donation. Um, she must have been like, why me? Like, correct. why do I have to help yeah. him? You know, he's my big
3: brother, and, like, really?
4: Yeah. I can imagine. So, it... It was a little bit traumatic. It was more intense. Um, you know, he was a fourth grader, so he's in he's in school. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Not a better semester than this, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he had to be homeschooled that entire year. I'm trying to homeschool him. I'm trying to work. I'm I was his nurse. You know, doing helping him with things. Um, and my husband was very helpful, but. I was always the one who took off from work and stayed in Kansas City with him in the hospital and and through the recovery. And so, did that change the your in your mind like your future plans? It did. It really um, made me think that everyone's time on this earth can never be taken for granted. Yeah. Um, and that you want to leave this earth feeling like you gave it your all, you pursued your passions, you lived a life that you wanted to live. And as much as I enjoyed HR, I just stopped having a daily passion for it and wanted to, to try something else on my own. And going through what we went through with Desmond just allowed me to have that courage to say, I can do this. And was there some...
3: So there's courage, and the flip side of courage is fear. Um, How did you overcome the fear? Or did you just feel like, really, honestly, life is short? I mean, life can be short, so I'm just going to do it and, you know, close my eyes. Because I'm very interested in
4: how people um, make these changes that are so hard, Yes, so um, I'm a Christian and I believe in prayer, so I mean, I prayed about this for a long time, but then I also educated myself. You know, I obtained the skills, the knowledge, the experience to do this, so I felt qualified to do it. Um, And so I did it. (laughs) (laughs) But that's right. I mean, I think that preparation,
3: um, I've been talking about this notion of um, follow, you know, a lot of people say follow your journey, which is a phrase that really bothers me um, because it makes it sound like all you need to do is, you know, see the white light and you go towards it. But in fact, the question, I think, is how you operationalize following the journey. Absolutely. Because otherwise you just end up broke or homeless or disappointed or back at square one correct so in your case it was edu- like just the education was what you really needed in order to move this forward it sounds yeah, like you know, it more than anything else yeah
4: the education and the experience just the hands-on experience so oh, right
3: because you also went and worked harvest in napa
4: so i i wasn't able to do harvest in napa but i did harvest in kansas and then i spent a ton of time at one particular winery asking questions helping them with their crush process um you know i i helped them with their harvest So I got some really good hands-on experience at a a really reputable winery.
3: Okay, so you are so, like, confident and competent, but there must be something. Like, what's the nagging thought in your mind that you can't educate yourself out of um, that you're like, (laughs) I... It bugs me because I can't solve this one. Like, what? what's the nagging thing?
4: Well, just the economics behind, can I sell all the wine that I have projected in my Performa to keep my business afloat and pay all of our bills once we open our physical winery? Um, that's the nagging question. So, you know, you need customers. And right now I have a strong customer base, but the the quantity of wine that we need to sell is really low because we don't have the overhead of a location. When you take on the overhead of a location, I have a very high monthly revenue goal that I need to meet. So it's like, can the momentum that I have created, you know, continue to elevate to take us to the next level? That seems like a very good. Question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to assume the answer is yes, but I can see how that would keep you up at night because
3: that's a it's such an unknown, right? It is an unknown because you have your customers. You just you you need to grow them, correct? Um, and you need to grow the word, and then they need to believe in you, and then you know hopefully you'll also bring along the mission because Absolutely. you're very very mission driven. Um, okay, well I have one last question that I always ask my guests, which is to pay it forward to a woman um, in. The hospitality business so it could be wine it could be food it could be uh, restaurants anything a mentor or someone you look up to for what they've achieved and the person hasn't gotten enough um, recognition
4: yeah so in the hospitality industry um, and actually the craft beer industry um, there is a gal Stacy Ward Layton. She is um, one of my mentors. She owns the Hopping Gnome Brewery, and it's a small tap room. But what she is doing to inspire other women brewers is incredible. And they have high foot traffic. Where you know they're trying to decide if they want to grow their footprint because they're running out of room in their space. Uh, they opened about three and a half years ago. And, and are they in Wichita? They're in Wichita.
3: Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining me. If people want to um, check out Jenny Dawn Sellers um, or learn more about you,
4: where can they find you? So I am on Facebook at Jenny Don Sellers. We're on Instagram and LinkedIn. And then we're also on Twitter at Jenny Don Seller not the ask. Isn't that annoying? S. I How know. Was-
3: <laughs> and you guys know where to find me at speaking broadly on Instagram. I hope you, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If there's, um, anyone you think that I should be interviewing, reach out and let me know. I'm always curious and I look forward to having you listen again next week. Have a really great week.